This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. It is not often that you read a book that is both heartbreaking, infuriating, inspiring, eye-opening, and riveting. Nicholas Dawadoff's new book, The Other Side of Prospect, brilliantly uses the particular story of the New Hallville neighborhood of New Haven, Connecticut, and a young black man wrongly convicted of murder to tell the universal story of the violence, poverty, and injustice that exists in too many of our American cities. There is a reason Nicholas has been a finalist for the Pulitzer, a Guggenheim Fellow, and the recipient of a slew of other honors and fellowships. He wraps his compassion and journalistic devotion to research and details into a story that takes us into his grip, leaving us more informed, more understanding, and hopefully more committed to being part of a solution. As James Baldwin said, if one wishes to know how justice is administered in a country, one does not question the policemen, the lawyers, the judges, or the protected members of the middle class. One goes to the unprotected. The unprotected could not be in better, wiser hands than Nicholas Dawadoff in his groundbreaking and important book, The Other Side of Prospect. Nicholas, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. And thank you for saying all those very flattering things. <laughs> Is, if blushes were visible just through audio, then, you know, the airwaves are bright red. <laughs> so, Nicholas, there's so many threads to your book that we could be here for hours and not feel satisfied that we covered the important points. You cover the Great Migration. You cover the impact of the loss of industrial urban jobs. You cover the loss of the black middle class in urban communities, racist policies affecting home ownership and the availability of affordable housing, poor educational systems, and problematic policing. The problems with the prism system, the complications of reentry, and the prevalence over decades of violence in our communities. So it's hard to know even where to begin because the magnitude of this is just so great. You begin the book by telling us about Herbert Fields Jr., known as Pete. And he represents the generation that was shaped both by the opportunity of coming north and a Jim Crow tactic that became a defining shadow on his family and lots of families. So let's start with the defining shadow that so impacted his family, because I think it says so much of what people brought north with them. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad to do that. The one thing I would say about those many themes and topics that you listed is that that is both the challenge and also the excitement of mm. writing narrative nonfiction, which is to say that what I hope and aspire to do as a writer is think about many things and make whatever story I'm telling have the features of a particular story, but then also have representative themes, if that makes sense. So everything you 
told about, I hoped would be in the book, but I hoped that it would fit into the story, so to speak, into the narrative. And so where anything begins, just as you asked, why it would begin with Herbert Fields, that's part of what is both the joy and also until you figure it out, the frustration of doing this. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, something was starting Pete Fields in South Carolina, that was on an index card. And I made all these index cards as I was thinking about how I was going to structure the book. And this is what I do every time. But there were probably close to 100 different index cards with many of the things that you just listed, but then also plot points. And for me, I always think of them as like boxcars in a railroad train, a freight train. And I move them around on the floor and where I'm working until they have what seems to me a coherent logic to them. And that gives it a kind of a narrative flow. Here, you couldn't tell the story of a community or of what happens in post-industrial America is represented by this one small but iconic American post-industrial neighborhood without explaining how people came. But you didn't want to talk about every generation because New Hallville was, was really a place where every wave of American immigration that was of any large significance that came through the East Coast of the United States since industrial America began, came through New Haven and, and lived in New Hallville. And that's what created New Hallville as a community of, of American uplift. The last generation to arrive was the great migration of mainly South Carolinians, but also people from North Carolina, Virginia, Alabama, Georgia, and other states who came north to New Haven, principally for the gun factory, Winchester Repeating Arms Factory, but other factories too. And there was work here. We want to quickly say that this wasn't always, it was sometimes hard work. It was sometimes tedious. It was, if you were black, it was underpaid relative to whites, but it was still an opportunity and an opportunity that could buy you a house in New Hallville, could eventually for many families move you up and out. And so it seemed important to tell that story because for me, the main character in this book is, is neighborhood. It's mm -hmm. how a neighborhood comes to be, how it changes, how it affects people, because children generally grow up right where they are and how right where you are, what your environment is like and how it affects you. That's a timeless story to me, and that's also a particular American story. Well, the other thing that I think telling the story your way makes it work, you know, that where it's narrative nonfiction is, don't you find that a lot of times if you're discussing an issue with someone in the macro philosophical way, you might come to a stark difference of opinion with a person. But if you personalize it, they know somebody who lost their job. They know somebody who's black. They know somebody who was in the prison system. It both makes the philosophical issue larger, but it also makes it invisible, right? Because you're talking about a person. You're saying that person didn't deserve that. That was a bad set of things that happened that you might not say philosophically. You know, your point of view might be different if you didn't represent it with the story of a person, which is what I think made the way you told this story work so well. You're absolutely right. You couldn't tell a story like this if you didn't have characters who, when you say characters, I mean people, people. real people who embody what you're trying to say. Right. And how you feel about those people Frederick Wiseman, the documentary filmmaker, once said in public that ultimately his relationship with the people that he 
concentrated on in his films was one of love. And for me, that is almost invariably mm-hmm. true. It doesn't always there in the middle. Sometimes there are all sorts of, I mean, I wrote a book about a guy named Mo Berg and he right. drove me crazy. I mean, it, you don't have to meet these people. It's just how you feel about what you know of them. And so that was someone I never knew. And I wrote a book about him for a long time while I was writing that book. It was really painful to write about him. But in this book, for sure. And, you know, Pete Fields, I never met because he was killed before I ever heard about him. Tragically, I feel as though by the time I was writing about him, I really loved him. And it was such a great regret in my life that I never met him. What can I say? I mean, you know, you have to retain a certain kind of distance when you're writing about people, but it's also, I just don't feel as though if you can, you can write about people well, unless you are free with your own emotion. You can't expect other people to be Mm -hmm. forthcoming with their emotion unless you feel what you feel. It's appropriate to me that you use the word love, because one of the things that I experienced reading the book is I became in love with a number of the people, you know, the main character, Bobby, that who we'll spend a lot of time talking about, but another character, Major, who by some standard would not seem likable at all. He was, you know, a pretty violent guy, but you depict him in a way where I thought, oh, honey, I, I, I want to give you a hug. I, I want you to know that you exist and somebody cares about you. Because you tell his story with such compassion, even though I think there's a line in the book where after he was killed, you say it was it was a relief, but it was sad for the community. I mean, I'll come to it because I have it in my notes because it shows the dichotomy. Like any other significant you know, American phenomenon, gun violence is complicated. And the people who are involved, one of the young people who I met who's in prison, who was involved in gun violence in Newhallville said, you know, in his life, he'd never met anybody who was straight bad. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's largely true. I think it's an enormous mistake to think that just because people end up doing really horrible and upsetting things means that that's all they are. I think it's probably more important for somebody like me to try really, really hard to try and understand why it came to that, how it comes to that, what it all means, and to try and unpack it. Everything in this book, for me, comes down to complication, that if you regard problems or people as something simple or something that is easily understood, you're probably going to go wrong because neighborhoods, people, big problems in any community invariably the reason they are that is because they are complicated. And And they're human. Yeah. And that's what, in the books that have mattered to me across my life, they are books which really grapple with human complication. And Mm -hmm. just because we're talking about here someone who did terrible things, that doesn't mean that it A, had to be that way, or B, that was all that person was. Doesn't mean that anybody would be forgiving of the terrible things that that person did, or that anybody would have anything but abhorrence for it. But again, there are many parts to a person and that usually it could go another way. Mm. And, And I do think one of the important phrases you used in that sentence which is what sits with you throughout this book. 
is it didn't need to be that way. Sometimes you see people and you think there was an inevitability to what happened by their health or mental health or other sort of DNA-driven things. But when you read these stories, you make clear it didn't have to be that way. So now we're holding all our listeners in suspense of what this story is. So let's get back to the people in the book and let's go back to Henry Fields Sr., the father of the person in the book, Pete, who ultimately is murdered. Right. Well, I think the simplest way just to express what the book is really about is that, yes, it has to do with a family that came from South Carolina to New Haven, Connecticut, as African-American families from all over the South came to Northern communities where typically industrial communities where there was well-paying work at various stages of the Great Migration. And the Fields family came and their family flourished. And his family at first, you know, bought their first house in New Hallville. And then, you know, when it, when it came to Pete Fields, he moved up and out. He eventually lived in a large house in a neighboring town, you know, a sort of typical feeling among immigrant parents. There's the hope that your children's lives will open up and become something more fulfilling maybe than yours was. And I think that that was certainly his aspiration. And um, yeah, you know, what you said a moment ago is something that I think about all the time, which is that from a remove, it's really, really easy to think things are simple and to just sort of even not necessarily even be indifferent, although people could be indifferent, but just be a sort of at a remove and just sort of think this is the way things are. But if I told you where this book really came from, it just came from a moment in my childhood in New Haven when I was sort of, I just remember how it felt. I mean, I could tell you a story if you want me to, but it, it really, it was looking at the structure of the city and thinking, why should this be? And that's a funny locution for a child, you know, but mm -hmm. that's really, I mean, I was standing on a baseball field in New Hallville and I was thinking about the proximity between right over there was, you know, paradise. It was Yale University. It was, you know, everything that to some degree a young American could dream of. And then I just knew that my teammates and some of the opponents, you know, that there was a lot of struggle in their lives and that they were so close and that the existences were so different and felt so boundaried. I, I mean, as a child, I just, you know, I just was standing there on the baseball field. I remember just thinking to myself, why should this be? To me, there's nothing more fun than learning. And with Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to cook the perfect egg from Gordon Ramsay, improve your writing skills from Amy Tan and Billy Collins, or learn tactical empathy from former FBI lead hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, with over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you always wanted to do is closer than you think. I highly recommend you check out Masterclass, get unlimited access to every class, and as a Just the Right Book listener, you get 15% off your annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash write book now. That's masterclass.com slash write book. Happy learning.
It seems to me that every week there's another gift I need to send for a wedding, a new home, a bridal shower, or just like to be nice. And the place I go to is Uncommon Goods. If you want to avoid boring, basic, and bland gifts this year, this is super. One of my favorite things is a tray where you could put the address and they show you like a little longitude, latitude map for it. And when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. And, you know, I think that's what we all need to be doing. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods has high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S. products. They're just out of the ordinary and you feel like you're really picking out a great gift. So from art to jewelry to kitchen to home and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So here's what you can do. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash write book. That's uncommongoods.com slash write book, and you'll get 15% off plus a great gift to send. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. My family lived for a while in Hartford. You saw the same sequence where the, you know, we as a Jewish family moved in. Then a lot of those families moved to West Hartford and Hartford lost jobs. It became more violent. It became more poor. The education system deteriorated. So I'm that much older than you. So I was in school in the late 50s grammar school and middle school in the late 50s, early 60s. So when you noticed that, what year was that? Okay, so I am now, I mean, what I said about neighborhood, I would say that most kids, you know, stay in their neighborhoods. That's just a typical thing. You know, most people do. And I was one of those kids who, you know, I had a single mom. We lived in a two-family house on a street not far from a highway exit on Willow Street is where I grew up and in New Haven. But I got to know the whole city because I played baseball all the way through my childhood. Mm. And if you did that in New Haven, it gave you a really unique outlook because you were in Fairhaven for, you know, the Clinton Avenue field. You were, you know, you were on Criscola Park. You were in Rice Field. You were Eddie Sheehan Field. And here I was on Bowen Field, which is basically in New Hallville. And at this point, it's the late 1970s. I think I was probably 14, maybe, Mm -hmm. or 15. So it was the late 70s. Yeah. And and I just, I guess I just would say about myself at that point that, you know, here I am, I have a single mom, you know, there's not a lot of money in our house by any stretch. I mean, my mom sleeps on the fold out and I can hear her through the wall, wondering if she's going to make the rent, you know, but on the other hand, I have all these advantages that some of the kids who I'm playing with as far as I could tell, really did not. Mm -hmm. And that made me, you know, I was going to a private school on scholarship as a junior high school and high school student. I felt as though that I really wasn't of any particular world, which is a very common thing for writers to feel Mm -hmm. anyway. But that sort of slightly, that, that idea that you're always an outsider 
is something that anyway, I really felt as a kid. And so standing on that field, yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, New Haven is a really complicated, interesting place. And that's why a lot of people are attracted to it who are writers, because it is a small city with big city problems. The demographics of New Haven make it, according to demographers, America's most normal city. So it's incredibly diverse. And yet it is really segregated. Very segregated. Right. And that makes it something that is for what I was thinking about is just something that is oscillates in the air in New Haven, which is that people who are having very, very different living experiences live right next to each other. They're just completely juxtaposed, but they live so far away. And there are all these invisible railroad tracks running through the city. But this is an American phenomenon. You can find this in the idea of a university, which is an elite university being right near a community where there is intense struggle is that's Baltimore, that's Philadelphia, that's, you know, New York City, that's, you know, that's Hartford where you grew up, that's that's St. Louis, Los Angeles, Chicago, you name it. These phenomenon exist everywhere. It's just that New Haven, it's a more intensified version of that because it's smaller. I was so struck by Pete's father's story about what happened to his family's land, I feel like that loss to his father and that shame to his father informed how Pete needed to live, what he needed to prove to himself, what he needed to do to redeem his father's shame in having allowed the authorities to take his land. And literally, that's what they did. So am I reading that right? Is that is that a fair, a fair way of talking about what informed Pete Fields? I think that's right. In other words, this is a family that is a black farming family in the South that is, if not prosperous, certainly doing really, really well. There's the idea, perhaps, that after Reconstruction, Black farming families just worked other people's land, which is completely wrong. There were plenty of Black families, more than you would think, that had land, but more often than you would think as well, that they were cheated out of their land. And literally. What, literally cheated. Literally, someone came and took the deed. And there are no records. I mean, I went and looked in that community in South Carolina. I went to where the record halls and looked for evidence of it. And every you could find that everything that the family told you Nothing that you could find would disprove it, but there are no records to indicate, of course, that this theft had gone on. Apparently, late in life, the person who did it apologized to the family, like, what's that worth? But yes, so if you have that sort of formative experience, we all know that the way to build wealth and to build generational wealth in this country, the the the, the most tried and true quickest way to do it is by having land and property. You know, it's used to be life, liberty, and pursuit of property, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that his father was humiliated in this way by a police officer in South Carolina who took the land. And then, you know, this became, they lost their home. It they, became they, defining. Becomes defining for him, sure. The other question that you posed is an enormous question and nobody could answer you know, the difference between 1950s and what exactly happened, nobody could answer that simply because it's enormously complicated. It speaks to matters of 
gun availability, and it speaks to race, race and class and different kinds of opportunity and accumulated frustration over generations. It speaks to a lack of hope, I think. It also speaks to exactly as you're suggesting, I think, it, who has wealth and who doesn't. It also, for me, it speaks to isolation too, mm -hmm. that when you are really stuck in place, this is something that people talk a lot about, is that if you are really stuck in place and you have only some indication that everything that is you know, opportunity, everything that sort of shimmers out in America is right over there, but it's not for you. That is incredibly enraging. And we should make clear about gun violence that gun violence is a horrible, horrible thing. And similar to things like shark attacks, and I guess I would also say police corruption, it takes very little for it to have a really resonant effect. Mm -hmm. In other words, even in communities where there is the most gun violence, very, very few people are actually participating in it. Right. But the feeling of it, it is such a significant and traumatic thing that any amount of it, with any regularity, it is deeply, deeply affecting for people. And if you are a kid growing up around it and you are exposed to it, this is deeply, deeply affecting to you in all sorts of ways, beginning with you're scared. There are a myriad ways to think about it, and it's really, really difficult to have a conversation where we're moving from topic to topic and to, for me to say, begin to talk about gun violence because it's such a complicated phenomenon. But I would also like to point out that, you know, availability of guns, you can't have gun violence unless there are guns. You, If you are exposed to violence and you are exposed to trauma and you are at risk for it, it makes you probably a more likely person to do it. But that the people who really study gun violence, including people locally in New Haven, like at Yale, who study it, it's a network phenomenon where the people who are most at risk for shooting are also most at risk for being shot. And so it is usually, although not always, because it is with any big, big phenomenon, you can't generalize too much. But statistically, you can notice that most of what happens happens within these isolated communities of people and places. One of the things that was really heartbreaking to me is, so you center your story on Bobby, who at age 16 had attended 50 funerals and one graduation, as you say. Share with our listeners who this young man was before he was wrongfully arrested. Well, the first thing he was and is is somebody who wouldn't describe himself as incredibly kind or incredibly responsible, even though you or I might certainly describe him that way. Somebody who's close to him describes him as an extraordinary, ordinary person. Mm -hmm. And whatever that means, I think it suggests that he's very relatable to lots of people who know him. He isn't a flashy person, but he has enduring virtues. The two things that always have most struck me about Bobby, one is, is that he's incredibly observant and that he's observant over time, which means that he sees a great deal into people. He's sort of a compassionate and non-judgmental observer, but he sees an awful lot. He sees with depth and he sees with memory so that whatever he's seen, he remembers over time and it integrates into his broadening vision of the world. So I always found him to be a really, really accurate. It's ironic for somebody who falsely confesses to the worst thing you can do to another person, that he's actually in, an incredibly truthful and accurate reporter of life experiences. I, I So I, I find him to be just incredibly feeling person. In another life, I could imagine that he would be a, a you know a clinical social worker or a yeah. psychologist just because he's so engaged in other people's 
thoughts and feelings. And that was his role kind of in the, in his small community of people. He was always the one who people brought their secrets and troubles to because A, he could keep a confidence and B, he was consoling for people. People really cared about him. Also, what I like about him is, is this is absolute resistance to anything that isn't true about him. Mm-hmm. In other words, when people began to talk about him as though he was some kind of saint or something, it really annoyed him because he was just a kid. And he was a kid who did... You know, he, he not everything that he did by any stretch was a good thing to do. But, you know, I mean, he was he, he was the things that I've said. I think he's big hearted. I think that he has a, a dry and funny sense of humor. And I think that he is one of the things that most struck me about him is that in a community where a lot of kids feel stuck in place, he was the kid who dared to get on his bicycle as a very young person, ride at, out of New Hallville and explore communities, including mostly white communities nearby where people would look really askance at him as though he was, you know, he was Trouble. an interloper who, who, you know, he didn't have a passport or a visa for this community and stuff. And, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking that as he talked about why he did it, one of the reasons he did it was for respite, that he felt that if you came there, then nothing bad would ever happen. Whereas in his community, he felt constantly at risk. And I feel as though most of the problems that this book is talking about, and again, it's a narrative book, so the problems are embedded, but the problems that we're talking about are complicated problems and people don't know what to do. But that's probably why they haven't been solved, although it's also true that poverty is often something that is ignored through American history and generational Mm -hmm. poverty exists because people who are in position to start thinking about it don't want to think about it. His stories were so often so full of just heartbreaking detail, like when his mom would go shopping and then there would be a line of people who would come who are his friends who are hungry and would just show up because they knew she'd just gone shopping and were, Mm -hmm. and you know, she couldn't feed everybody. And in this country, there really isn't any need for all sorts of reasons, including programs for this to be, but yet somehow it is true that there are a lot of kids who are growing up in that community who are hungry. You know, right here I, in New Haven. Another kid was telling me, yeah, another kid from the community was telling me about how he had friends who, when his mom cooked lasagna, he would always go and take pieces of lasagna, wrap it up in foil, and then he would lower it with a sort of like fishing line out of his second story window down to his friends who were there so they could eat. And, you know, that same kid, you know, they didn't have a lot of, they would share clothes. And these are things that are happening in cities all over the country. And it just, it's incredibly troubling and sad that this still exists. So Nikki, how does this kid that we're talking about with such affection and promise get arrested for murder? Well, I think from his perspective, you get arrested for something like that in his circle of kids, the place to hang out was where also a lot of drug dealing was going on. It's called and so, the Two Fours. Yeah, it was a, it was a street corner in in Newhallville, and but this is also where the young women he who he liked to hang around yeah. with were. It was like there's not a lot of places to go, and this was where you know he went. But as other kids would say, if you go to that corner, you have to know that there's the possibility you're going to get in trouble. But that's again, it's true, and he would say that it was all on him. But I would also say that one of the things that happens in isolated communities is that even in policing, and, uh, you know, I feel like so everything I say, I want to add a caveat, 
But it is true that in policing, there are going to be some police officers, most, who get into it because they care about public safety and they want to, yeah. you know, make make life They're better for people. everybody else. But it doesn't take many police officers, just as, you know, as it doesn't take many sharks, shark attacks for the whole thing to seem yeah. much more than it is, right? And so, you know, I mean, but you do, if you're in Bobby's community, I think make yourself much more vulnerable to police officers who are overzealous if you are there as opposed to maybe in different communities, white communities, you know, middle-class communities. You cannot imagine this happening as easily without the questions of race and class. And I would also say that with Bobby, once you begin unpacking how someone gets involved with police and eventually comes to a false confession, you are talking about how somebody feels about a system, how the system feels about them, that a young, innocent young person may trust that the system is going to do the right thing. They may eventually just get tired of being questioned and want to go home. They may feel that it's all going to get sorted out later because police officers are going to do the right thing. You know, there are all sorts of elements of tragedy and both complication and then here we're also talking about lack of complication. Well, he he must have did, done it. He just fits the profile or something. But let's break it down because there are a couple of elements that were striking that you bring up. He gets accused of a murder, like based on a loose rumor. He is pulled in. There is one of those cops who at one point was an outstanding detective, Willoughby, who coerces a false confession out of Bobby. The sloppy policing is there's evidence, there's a fingerprint, there's ballistic evidence, there's lots of reason to think it's somebody else. But because they force the confession, nobody pursues it. That's the sloppy policing. But then there's the other irony is there were people who saw the two other guys who committed the murder Snitching was a worse crime than murder in the neighborhood because you could get murdered, your kids could get murdered, your family could be at risk. So you get this convergence of things that, in this case, doomed Bobby to getting convicted. But I would like you to spend a few minutes on this, Nikki, because I think most people would say, how on earth do you get somebody to confess to a murder that they didn't commit? And you started to talk about it a little bit, but I think it's worth talking about what tactics will be used in order to get Bobby to confess. Sure. I think there's the belief in all of us that we would never confess to any crime we didn't commit, much less the worst crime, what most people consider the worst crime, which is murder. We would just never do that. Nobody right. could ever make us do that. But pretty clearly, I think, if you talk to people who really know about these things, who study it for a living, anybody can be put in such an extreme position that 
well, not anybody, but most of us could be put in such a such an extreme position that given the options, it, confessing might seem like the best option. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of reasons why a frightened 16-year-old kid- No, pl- no lawyer, no parent. Nobody. He's alone without a parent, without a lawyer. He's in there with two experienced police officers. Why, over time, he might eventually do it? And, you know- his explanation is, well, I mean, he spent a lot of his life trying to understand why he would do such a thing, because as I said before, he's an, he's an inherently truthful person. I mean, one reason is he felt he didn't have any other choices because he they kept telling him, well, you know, you're going to get the death penalty unless you confess. And you'll never if, see your family again. Because we know again. you did this. You'll never see your family again. You're going to get the death penalty. If you confess, though, you'll just get probation. They were making all sorts of deals and promises, which are untrue. illegal things yeah. to do and untrue. But over time, he was also just getting exhausted and more and more frightened. And he thought, well, if I can only get out of here, if I can get out of this little room, and I've seen the room, it really was, nobody would want to be there for hours and hours and hours with two older people who are pressing at you in a really aggressive way. Yeah. It might seem like, well, if I just give them what they want, then, eh, you know, what's the worst thing? My family could, they keep, you know, if, if, if I say who really did it or what I've heard, I don't know if he even really knew who did it, but like everybody in the neighborhood, he had an idea. And if I say anything like that, my family could be hurt. I feel like I have to protect them. I don't want my family to be hurt. I want to see, you know, they tell me I'll never see my family again unless I confess. And then it'll just be this probation thing. I won't even have to go to prison, but otherwise I'll get the death penalty. And then if you believe them, if you have some sort of feeling that, the, the, the people who are representatives of, of, of the legal system are protecting you, are there for you, that they speak to truth and honor and, you know, public safety and so forth, you might eventually just like sort of give up. And this happens over and over again. If What happened to him is not an uncommon no. thing. What's only unusual about him is how young he was. Well, you talk about in the book that they're asking him to describe the what is now being called a robbery gone bad. And he couldn't even describe it because obviously he didn't do it. He wasn't there. And they turn off the tape and they tell him what to say. Yeah, this is one of the things that really struck his lawyer is that he never knows, you know, Bobby's contention. He doesn't even know how to confess. Right. Bobby's (laughs) contention is is that, you know, when it came time to confess, he had no idea what to say because he didn't do it. So they fed him lots of information. But then later on when he appears in court, because there's an alleged co-defendant and he testifies at this alleged co-defendant's trial, you know, when Bobby's asked to describe certain things, he doesn't know what to say because it didn't happen. And if someone isn't giving him information, he doesn't he, have he it. He doesn't know. And he, you know, his 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 response in court when we, you know, when prosecutor asked him things is to say, in effect, what am I supposed to say? I don't know. You know, and this is what the lawyer who eventually takes on his case is so struck by. He's like, you know, they're just pushing this kid around and he has, he has, he's giving them every indication that he is, you know, a really truly fundamentally innocent person and then nobody's paying any attention. When I say something like that too, I just, I, there's, again, there's always a caveat, I'm sorry, but once you confess to something though, you can imagine what that's like, for, then you're just, you're, you're doomed because- And you have no right, one of the things I learned is if you confess, you have no right to appeal which I hadn't realized. Once you confess and you also are convicted, then you get then then Bobby gave up his right to an appeal. Yeah. yeah. And so he would have to have gone the route of a wrongful conviction which 
is a whole nother thing than appealing your case. Right, exactly. And it required the ingenuity of this amazing lawyer. When I say amazing, it's just he's he's, he's really... What, a car- is this Ken Rosenthal? Yeah, this is Ken Rosenthal, who's the lawyer who eventually hears about Bobby's case. And on his own, he begins to work on it. And he, you know, he is he is someone who is just... I think most people would describe him as a true believer. He's a he's a completely original person who yeah. once he decides <laughs> to do something, his level of dedication to it is really something. I mean, if I were telling you about Ken Rosenthal, I would begin the way many of his clients begin for whom he works, who describe him when he's working on one of their cases, which is to say he does everything possible to maximize the attention he can give their case. Um, he's just avid and fervent and completely over the top committed. And Bobby was very lucky that he had someone who just like this, who took an interest in his case and wouldn't quit. And that kind of was what it took. Well, you know, you're saying that reminds me of, this is going to sound really perverse, probably what I'm going to say is, but in some ways, Bobby's charming, virtuous, set of qualities did end up bringing him a perverse kind of luck. So he goes into prison. He's convicted. He goes to prison as an adult. Um, and he's, you know, he's in prison as a kid. We're, we've got a prison system that is hardly into rehabilitation. It's, it, by your depiction in other books that I've read, recreates an almost violent environment that these kids come from where they don't matter, where they have no agency, again, no agency. Yet there's a group of men in prison that sort of become the father that Bobby never had. And and it's, well, the fa- the fa- the father presence, in other words, the day to day presence, where right. who, where he's receiving their their attention on a day to day kind of selfless basis. Yeah, I think when Bobby was really depressed when he was in prison for quite a while, as you can imagine. Yeah, and people worried about him, and some older people took it as their second chance in life to give him potentially a second chance by mentoring him by helping him, consoling him, reading books with him, discussing books with him, working out with him, playing basketball with him, and also just listening like to his- Like a book fr- club they formed? Yeah, and just listening to his frustrations and you know, sort of processing his day-to-day experiences with him the way you might, if you were an older person engaged with a sensitive, suffering, but very appealing younger person. Bobby is someone who, when you get to know him day to day, people really, really grow to care about him. But one of the things that happens as with these police officers is, is that maybe he wouldn't, the moment you met him, present initially as charming as he is. Mm-hmm. So when you say that he's charming, I think he's very charming, but I'm not sure that if that's you just the first met, impression. that's the first impression, especially when he's taken out of context, like sitting in a in an interrogation room with, with police officers. And so it's just, you know, the complexities of how these things go, you know, and how are police officers really supposed to know? And this is really, I mean, to me, ultimately, I would say that how they're supposed to know is this is a real, real case for good community policing, because 
Policing can only be responsive once a crime is committed, but if you better know the community before crimes happen, then you better have an opportunity to have a sense of who people are. When, and and it, was, it would have been possible to know somebody like Bobby better before the, the, you know, this incredibly crucial moment happens, this moment of inflection when his life is just completely going to change. I think what you do in the book, as we've talked about, by laying out the complexities, you understand that nothing's straightforward. And I think as a reader and someone who's, you know, paid a lot of attention to this and done, you know, little or nothing about it, you're infuriated by the fact that this has been a problem that is now running 40 years. This is not a new problem. This is this started in the late 60s. It's 2022. Sure. Well, one of the things I would just like to point out is show me the American community, which is a prospering community where there's lots of opportunity for people, where there's also lots of gun violence. I don't think it exists. It's not going to happen. I think gun violence typically coincides where people feel- Poverty, but also sort of hopelessness and a powerlessness. One of the things that people who study gun violence for a living will tell you is that in their experience, one of the features of gun violence in certain communities is that for some people, it is actually a source of prestige, that a gun brings a kind of power that isn't otherwise available to people. There's even agency in owning a gun. And to me, when I started hearing things like this, it was a horrifying thing. But then when I started well, you talking, understood with, it. I understood it, but it was, could it really be? But then as I began to talk with young people who had grown up in the particular community that I was writing about, it, it seems certainly true. So this this will probably feel like a very annoying question to you, um, but that's okay. You know, because we, you know, we could start talking about prison reform. We could talk more about gun violence. We could talk about recidivism rates and why the prison system isn't in the business of rehabilitating prisoners. I think you talk about in the book that the recidivism rate is some astonishing number north of 60% because there's nothing that's going on in prison to help them in re-entry. And I'll even talk for a minute about a re-entry for Bobby because you had two great pieces. But did you come away from doing this book, Nikki, with one thing that if you had a magic wand that you wished public policy would address first and foremost, if there was one thing that could make a difference in the lives of communities like New Hallville or, or the hundreds of, or maybe thousands of communities like that across the country, did you come away with a feeling of pick one? I think the thing I was most sort of, I guess you wished for so many different kinds of things that when you're writing about a a range of troubles, you're hoping for a range of solutions. But if I had to say one thing that I really hoped for was, you know, as you just said, these problems are not new. These are old, enduring American problems. They're inflected with even older problems. They still exist because to some degree they're hard to solve. But also I always felt that 
most big American problems continue to exist because there isn't sufficient will to solve them. Mm. And the problem, as I would define it, that I wish there was more sufficient will to solve was what you could call a post-industrial solution. It took me a long time to be prepared to do this because I felt that this was a really, really difficult project. And I felt as though I needed a lot more experience as a writer and also just as a civic-minded citizen and as a, you know, as a researcher and reporter too, to be able to do something like this. I thought it was complicated. And if you were going to make it something that would be a book that people would find, I mean, let's, let's just, you know, you didn't just want it also to be kale, you know, you wanted it to be a book that would be, I mean, it's not, it's, you wouldn't say a pleasure to read, but you would want it to read like literature, you wouldn't want it just to be something that people felt compelled to read because they wouldn't do it, you know? And so, so I spent a lot of time in my life getting ready to do this. I didn't think that this was a project for a long time that I could do. But once I began doing it, what really, I think, impelled me to do it, something that I'd been thinking about since I was a kid on that baseball field, was that as I traveled around the country for work, I noticed just so many communities, which seemed to me to have the same features. Mm -hmm. And the explanation, at least when people I met there would offer it, was that you know this had been a community that had once been flourishing and that the downfall had been you know the close of job opportunities for people who weren't especially well-trained in a skill or for whatever reason, weren't highly educated. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. But I just wish that there had been more attention paid to a post-industrial solution. Mm -hmm. I felt that the problem of post-industrial neighborhoods had never been defined as such and had never been, you know, such a pressing initiative that something was really done. And so that would, I suppose, be my answer. I wish that there was a post-industrial solution. And it always seemed to me in New Haven that this would be a perfect place to do it because New Haven was a smaller city. It had all the features of so many other places that I'd visited. And yet it, it, it was compact in a way that it could be taken on. And I never quite understood yeah. why a great institution like Yale University, which lives, which, I mean, what does it do? It educates people, but it's also a research institution, which thinks really hard and but across its history away. so well, whether it's thinking about, you know, issues related to COVID. I mean, Yale did all, made all sorts of brilliant innovations, came to many such significant public solutions. There's its backyard. Why wouldn't there be the greatest post institute for post-industrial studies in the country here? So you're asking me my wish? That would be my wish. We both live here in New Haven, and I had lived in New York most of my life. And I feel the same way. It feels like a small enough city that you could do a lot of work here that could be impactful. You know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I think entrepreneurship is a great gateway. And there are organizations in New Haven now, including Yale, that are beginning to pay attention to, okay, there are people with ideas and skills and opportunities for business. They need advisors. They need access to capital, which is a mini way of thinking of post-industrial environments. I want to talk a little bit about two issues because I think when people read the book, and I think the customers at RJ Julia will probably get sick of me saying that this is the book. If they were going to read one book this year, it's going to be the other side of prospect because I do think your point is 
the right one about we haven't had the will to solve it. And I think part of the will to solve it is that the rest of us going about our daily business understand the crucial need and the travesty of not having the will to solve it. You know, we've got obviously a lot of problems, but this to me, and I do think you're right, the post-industrial world, the opportunity for jobs is a big, you know, when I think of my dad in 1954 in New York as an immigrant, he was two things. He was three things. He was white, he was a baker, and he had untold amounts of hope. He was like, so America can do everything. And America did do everything for him. You know, he became wildly successful. But in the 50s and in the early 60s, the sense that anything was possible in the white world existed, right? That you had a sense that, yeah, you could get from here to there. In the black world, then there was maybe even some of that because those were some of the people who came north for well-paying industrial jobs. But, you know, as you depict so clearly in the book today, that's not how these neighborhoods feel. There aren't jobs. There isn't hope. It does, you, they don't even know what it looks like to get out of there. Well, this is one of the things that people like Patrick Sharkey and other sociologists who study sort of poverty that exists over time will tell you is that it becomes generational. Yeah. And it's increasingly hard once you don't have any resources to accumulate sufficient resources. That doesn't mean it can't happen. That doesn't mean that people with extraordinary will or extraordinary luck move up and out. It's just harder. It's way harder. Way harder. And I think people, because they hear about sort of the stars, the, you know, the, the quasars of, 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 of success, they hear about someone who grew up under incredible privation and then through force of will and force of personality end up at Yale Law School and then win a MacArthur that this that everybody can do yeah, it. Yeah, like Dwayne Betts. That, that, like Dwayne Betts. That's an extraordinary person. And I think Dwayne would be the last person to say that everybody can do it. If he can, can do, do it, it, anybody can yeah, do it. Absolutely. I, mean, I think he he would recognize, you know. I mean, this is making him sound as though he would be bragging about himself, which he would never do. He's my friend, but you know, but I, I think he would recognize just how 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 tough it is. I mean, he spends so much time with people who are in prison, and in in, in talking to people who are in prisons, I think he would be the first to recognize just how difficult it is, and how everybody needs help and needs needs a kind of leverage that you can't supply for yourself. I mean, James Comer, who is someone who has worked for many years at Yale Child Study Center yeah. and is just a, you know, is a New Haven extraordinary icon, would, would always would say, you know, it's very hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots. Mm. And, you know, we can't have a system based on the exceptional. I think I get a little frustrated when people say, well, Dwayne Betts did it or this guy did it or whatever. But a system based on being exceptional is not a system that's going to work for society. Yeah, there are always exceptional people that are going to manage to, out of the most abject poverty, the most inhumane of circumstances, manages to 
rise to a level of purpose and accomplishment, but that doesn't mean that the system's working. Right. Because what we're really talking about, we're talking about the increasing inequality in America. And that's something that is definitely true for New Haven. I mean, New Haven's an interesting city to look at just because if you if, if you look at ratios for growing inequality over the years, New Haven often ranks at the top of American cities for that. And if you look at sort of norms for American cities, which include measures of inequality, New Haven has that too. So it's just discrete opportunities for a better life. And that doesn't mean that the people who have more opportunity, that they don't work hard too, but it's just the opportunity to be ambitious is something that is rarer than you might think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think, you know, what I ultimately think is, is what's the incentive for something like that, like this? Because people generally don't want to help unless they have skin in the game themselves. So what's the skin in the game for just, and it's happier cities. It's, it's more better fl- places it's, it's, to be. It's better places to be. I think people who study, for example, education would say that the more integrated a classroom, the better it is for everyone. Well, the more integrated a neighborhood, the better it is for everyone. And so it isn't just some sort of pie in the sky thing we're talking about where people should do it just because it seems virtuous, although that's certainly a good reason to do things. It's also just because there is enlightened self-interest in it. You, you could make your public life better. What your book, I think, does is illustrate the issues in a way that opens a lot of eyes, I think, to those of us that have paid attention, hopefully can open eyes to people who have maybe not paid attention and that they begin to have glimpses that making changes here makes for a better public life for all of us. When I was a child growing up in New Haven, there were only the remnants of a downtown New Haven that was a really flourishing, exciting place to be. So that I, as a child who grew up in in the city, remember just, I had sort of the points of my childhood were often directed downtown to a certain hobby shop or to a movie theater, or these, these were the, or a bookstore, or just, there were a certain number of, play, a record shop, you know. Enough places. Or, these were the places I liked to go, and that put me into a mix with lots and lots of other people. And very quickly, across my childhood and across my life, it became less and less mm. a place where I felt that I was mixing, intermingling with not just everybody, but with all the things that come with going into stores like yours. You know, you go into a store like yours, you're not just looking at books. You're also just shoulder to shoulder with all sorts of people who represent a community. And for me, it's only really almost a a sort of a gleaming myth how people talk about what downtowns were like in the United States before I was born, Mm -hmm. which was generally speaking, they talk about them as these magical places that were had a sort of a magnetic attraction for people. That doesn't mean they were perfect. That doesn't mean that society didn't have all sorts of problems then. But that was an aspect of society, a sort of Jane Jacobs notion of what a downtown would be that is just, for me, something that I hold on to as what I most enjoy about being a citizen, which is just coming together with lots and lots of other people in places that I like to be, in places that, you know, 
that just inform and broaden me as a person. That's what's exciting. It's not exciting to be isolating. It's for me anyway, it's really depressing. I don't like buying things, you know, through the mail. I like buying things in the company of people who are excited to sell them to me, who recognize me when I walk back in, who are recognizing other customers, where I feel like I'm in the mutual company of my fellow citizens. I mean, it sounds kind of hokey, but this is really, to me, what city life is all about. And it makes city life just so much more enjoyable. There's a lot of anger in American cities. And I think part of it is because they are so isolating, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was exactly the opposite purpose for cities. That's not to say again, that cities didn't have isolating qualities. All the, I mean, books like, you can read something like Jacob Reese's How the Other Half Lives and you can see just how isolated American cities always were. But you can also see how when people talk about that sort of beautiful idea of what maybe downtown only seemed like in New Haven just before my time, It's, you know, just before people left and, you know, how would you lure them back from the suburbs? This to me is like, that's a good thing. That's a thing to keep and to maybe, if you've lost it a little bit, try even harder to get again. Well, I thought about that when you talked about that in the redevelopment here in New Haven, which is typical of many cities, 800 small businesses were destroyed, you know, were displaced. Right. And the way downtown New Haven disastrously was recreated was it was created sort of on a suburban model placed within a city so that what people, what it, what city planners thought the people who were fleeing to the suburbs, the middle class who had, you know, financial wherewithal to spend in shops, what they would want is they would want you know, in effect, shopping malls and highways and things. So these became features of downtown, which was exactly... Like the Chapel Street Mall here in New Haven. Yeah, which I, I maybe some it's people liked ugly. it, but it was like doom. <laughs> it's ugly. <laughs> yeah. Just like the best books, the best TV has great writing, great characters, and great stories. And some of the best stories of all time have come from the pens and typewriters of Britain's female mystery writers. That's what's fun about BritBox, the streaming service created by BBC and ITV. With BritBox, Britain's queens of crime are streaming all in one place, whether it's Agatha Christie, Anne Cleves, or the Vera series that lots of people are loving. So... I have a special limited time offer for our listeners, 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use the promo code BOOK at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Use promo code BOOK at BritBritBox.com, BritBox.com. Nikki, you mentioned that you got sort of the seed of the idea on a baseball field in New Hallville when you were young. And you also mentioned that it took you a long time to get to the place as a person where you felt that you could write the story. How long did it take you to write the book and how did you go about doing the research and how did you recognize that it was time for you to write it? 
I'm not sure how I recognized that it was time. Things just sort of, it's its maybe the same, same answer to the question when people say, how do you know when you're ready to start writing your book? Or how do you know when, you know, sometimes you just suddenly have a feeling that you're ready. And until before, it's sort of a deep breath feeling for sure. But beforehand, you had the feeling of not being ready. But then when you have the deep breath feeling that this is something that you're just compelled to do, that's how you know. I mean, I'd lived in New York all of my adult life as a writer. And when I came back to New Haven, I hadn't lived in New Haven since the summer after my freshman year in college when I was working in a New Haven factory. After that, I always lived elsewhere until I just decided that I wanted to come back and do this. And in coming back to do it, of course, making my family move, so to speak, it's a deep breath moment. But I just, yeah, what can I say? I felt compelled to do it in part because I had that same level of well, curiosity and also frustration that I'd had since that day when I was a little boy and I was thinking about these things. I mean, these were just preoccupations in my life, but I didn't really know how to do it. I just had this sort of sense that this was something I wanted to do. And like any other project in that way, you just start talking to people. And the way it came to be for me is that one day I received a phone call from a lawyer who said, you know, um, I've heard what you're up to and I think I have a client who would really speak to some of the things that you're apparently thinking about. Would you be willing to come talk to me about it? And so it was that on a snowy Sunday, I went to this lawyer's office, which was in the attic of a law firm. And um, there he was up there and he was just packed with boxes. The, the, The boxes were full of folders and papers and binders and things. And this was all this work that he had done and other lawyers had done too over the years on this particular case. And he said, just look through this and you know, I'd be glad to talk with you about it if you if you have any questions. And I looked through it and listen, I'm no more than anybody else. I'm just a citizen and it's not my, it, it couldn't be my my place to decide somebody's guilt or innocence, but it seemed compelling and persuasive to me just again as a layman. And so much so that I really did want to meet his client. And as soon as I met his client, it became clear to me that this was someone whose personal experiences across life were representative experiences in their way, even though he was a distinctly individual person. And that in talking to him and then beginning to meet members of his community and then on my own sort of branching out and, you know, talking to everything from police officers to, you know, social workers, to street outreach workers, to academics, to people who are in prisons, to just a myriad of people who could speak to some of the issues that I was thinking about. It was incredibly useful and informative. And also just, it felt like involved were people who had many, many strong feelings and a lot of heart and a lot of just human emotions that to me are crucial if you're going to talk about anything which has meaning for you. So and how that, long did it take? Uh, it By far the most longest <laughs> project of my life. Uh, it took, I really, my family, I, it, was, it, was, it was at least eight years. Yeah. Yeah. This is my sixth book and I'd never spent that long in a book before. Oh, is that right? Oh, nothing like it. I mean, because the level of detail in the book and the amount of documents you must have looked at and the research that you did. The other thing I was curious about is, do you have a relationship today with 
any of the people in the book, particularly, I mean, the ones that are still live, do you have a relationship with Bobby or his mom or any others? I mean, I interviewed over 500 people for this book. It's an interesting question that people don't often ask. It's a good question. You know, what your relationships are like with the people who you come to know in the midst of long, detailed nonfiction projects. And for me, my ex- my own experiences is that I generally keep knowing after I'm done a few people who were part of the project. And I think that goes all the way back to my first project. Mm -hmm. And this one is held true. The people who I spent the most time with, yes, absolutely, including Bobby. I I would also say that there's a natural point where, I mean, your obligation as a writer is it's always to the reader. And if you are going to write well, you have to make some distance for yourself where you're just writing. And that's every project. And I, so far as I know, that's every nonfiction writer. And I certainly did that, but I always kept in touch with people. And, you know, when the book was done, one of the th- moments of, I don't think she'd mind me telling you, one of the moments of greatest, well, most moving moments to me was that Pete Fields' sister wanted me to read the book to her over the phone. And it wasn't that she wasn't going to read it wow. herself. She just wanted to, I don't know how to... I mean, I guess she wanted to experience it with me. And holy cow. That was, I, I mean, I, it's making me emotional to remember. I'm sorry, but I mean, it was just, it took a, a full week, all day, every day to read this manuscript, was still the manuscript to her. And, um, you know, I mean, you just have some experiences in every project that you really cherish. And that turned out to be one of them. Has Bobby read the book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He read it at around that same point. And how would you characterize how he feels about it? I mean, he's only only ever told me that he's fine with it, Mm -hmm. you know. Did you worry about any of that? Did you worry about- I worried about about everything, Roxanne. I mean, this book was full of worry. This book was full of worry and stress and concern. I think when you're you're a writer, you're always worried about the people that you're writing about. I mean, it's just, if you weren't, I think there would be something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. But I, I just have to say that when you're writing about people who've been through as much as someone like Bobby has, you'd probably worry a little more. If you didn't- Because you don't want to do any harm. Right. Well, any more harm. And you want, and and yet you fully recognize that once you agree to do something, you don't know what the full truth yeah, is. It's you, a genie out of the bottle. It, yeah. You're just, you, you know, again, your obligation is to your reader and your obligation is also to truth. And one of the things that I really liked about Bobby was that he always said, I have some idea of what it takes to do this. I know what it takes. This is after we talked a lot. And he said, you just have to do what it takes. And I don't think that he never asked favors of me or asked me to do anything that made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, Ken Rosenthal always says that, you know, what a wonderful client he was. And I found him to be someone who it was... I'm not saying that he didn't get tired of me constantly towards the <laughs> end, calling, <laughs> calling to be sure things were right, but he was always responsive to me, even when he was in really, really bleak circumstances mm-hmm. himself because of what he'd been through. But he understood that I was just trying really hard to be truthful and factual in what I was doing. Of course, if you're in prison and you've been wrongfully convicted of something and you're in prison for all these years for something you hadn't done and someone like me comes along, obviously there would be benefit to you. But I think even from the first before, you know, he was released from prison, even from the first, I think he saw 
the opportunity in his experiences to be helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. I feel as though that he is in just a deeply generous person as a yeah. civic as a civic quality. I mean, he was definitely one of the people, the ma the major person in the book that I just fell in love with. I mean, I just, I, I, when things were going awry for him, when there were awful circumstances and injustices, it, I, I like had a visceral heartbreaking response to, you know, which is a testament to your writing. And, just a reminder of how complex these issues are, which brings me to what sadly will be my last question. You, you've talked a lot about your obligation as to the reader. What do you hope a reader takes away uh, from your book? It's a little bit of, I think, what we were talking about when we discussed a post-industrial solution. I hope in the ways that Listen, there have been, in the history of my life, as it reflects New Haven, Connecticut, there have been so many people who are individuals or who are members of nonprofit institutions who've done things to try and make the city better. It isn't as though just because New Haven is a place that has its struggles, like every community does, that there aren't an incredible number of resourceful, good-hearted, generous people who want the best for their communities. But it takes more than that to affect real change. And the only way that real change gets affected is if it becomes a groundswell of public will. That's a pretty grandiose thing to ask from one book. I don't know. So, and I Let's don't, go with it. I feel as though, you know, I hope maybe that many people will begin who are writers and other people will think more about these matters that are of obvious you know, significant concern to me. And I think that they are. So that I think that the most you can ask of one book, a kind of book that I'm surely not the only person who could write about the issues that are in this book. And many people can write about them in different ways. Similarly, I'm not, the way I think about them isn't the only way to think about them. But that's, I guess, what I would most ask for is if there were just a range of people thinking about these things in a really engaged and... Solution-driven. Not just solution-driven, but also sort of a way in which it's, I guess the word that comes to mind is shared. I mean, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that comes from city life is that it's inherently something that is shared. Yeah. This is territory that belongs to everybody that everybody uses. Well, here are some problems that I've been thinking about for a long time that I know now that I've done this project that many other people are too. I hope people would become, it would become a matter of shared engagement for lots of people. Mm. And that, you know, that in some small way, I could help maybe make a few people's lives better. But I don't want to make it seem, when you say things like that, it makes you sound as though you think you're some kind of savior or something. And that's the no. furthest thing. I think I just think of myself as one person who this is the way that I could contribute to where I grew up. And so I tried to do it. Well, I would say... You did it. As I as I said in the introduction, using the James Baldwin quote that you have in the dedication, you know, you and I are both people who believe a book can change a life. And I fiercely believe that. And I think every once in a while a book comes along. I was fascinated by the fact that one of the quotes is from Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, who wrote Random Family, which is, 
another book that I felt rearranged my brain that made me like a kaleidoscope, look at something I saw every day differently. And I think your book does precisely the same thing. I think it it creates the possibility that somebody's brain is going to be rearranged to see what's in front of them every day in a different enhanced way. If that leads to changes in behavior, you know, we should only be so lucky. But as a writer, that's a pretty high order. And I think this book does it. Well, that's so generous of you. You know, I, I mean, I think you described my ambition for myself better than I could, <laughs> which is that, which is that when you say you would want people to see something they see every day a little bit differently, well, that's what I would want. And that's just what I get myself from books. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking with Nicholas Dowadoff, the author of the extraordinary book, The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. Nikki, thank you so much uh, for writing the book. Thank you for uh, taking the time. And, you know, we're having this conversation a week or two out from the date of publication, but I, I hope and believe that this book will take its place as one of those books that, you know, in decades forward, people will refer to as having informed them. So thank you for all that. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you also just for being the rare person who owns over time what for so many writers is just referred to as one of those bookstores. It's such a special place that is so meaningful, of course, for the people who are your customers, but also for all of us who feel so lucky that you are so supportive of writers. So it's, it means, you know, obviously everything to us. So it's well, such thank a you. pleasure to be here. <laughs> thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.